Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hi everyone, welcome back to Create Out Loud with me, Jen Loudon. On this show, we invite the world's most interesting, dynamic, and groundbreaking creatives to get vulnerable about their creative journey and to share the lessons they learned along the way so that you too can have a deep and fulfilling creative life. This week, we're talking to Beth Pickens. Beth is a Los Angeles-based consultant for artists and art organizations. She's the author of Make Your Art No Matter What and Your Art Will Save Your Life. I chose to have Beth on because I like practical voices that give you tools, insights into the creative process, yes, but also tools for how do you manage this thing called a creative life and a career and money. And Beth just talks about things in such a down-to-earth, practical, clear-seeing way. I love this interview so much. Let's go. Beth. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on as a guest is you are such a stand for this truth. If you are an artist, if you are a creative, you need to make your art. And it's not an overstatement. It's not a fluffy Instagram post. It's a fact. And if you stop doing your creative work, your your life is diminished. So I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you for, for being a stand for that and everything you do in the book, Make Your Art, and in your podcast, Mind Your Practice, and in your manifestos or pamphlets that you've written. Yeah, I think it's a fundamental truth that I've just observed in so many artists over the years of my work and the people in my life. Most of my friends are artists. I'm married to an artist. And I really see the consequences of when an artist stops making their work for any reason, for any duration of time, their their life quality diminishes. The big question that we reckon with as creatives uh, over and over again, especially after disappointment and during the kinds of years that we've been living through politically and, and as the climate crisis is becoming more clear maybe to people, some of us has been clear for a long time, but some people are living with it in a whole new way. Why bother? Mm-hmm. I think it starts with this sort of individualistic sense that each person just has one experience on the planet, as far as we know, as far as I know, that might as well be a good experience as it can be. And for artists, the way an artist takes care of themselves in part is through making their work. So their life quality is going to be better. Whether or not they decide to share the work with anyone, they can have a practice that's just a relationship to the self if they if they choose. And they will feel better because an artist's practice is how they process their life in times. It's how you understand being alive and communicate and process emotions and experiences and thoughts, not doing that is going to make all of the difficult things of the era that we're in worse and unexamined. Mm-hmm. And I say, what's the point of that? Why bother unex- having an unexamined life? <laughs> Why bother the unexamined life? <laughs> I love that. Why bother the unexamined life? So part of what you're calling out there is separating the practice, which is a word you use. It's the name of your podcast from the product or what you might sell or how you might make your living. How do you, you work with a lot of professionals as a, as a therapist? How do you help them separate those two out? When, I mean, I have made my living 
working as a creative for 30 plus years. It's mm-hmm. hard sometimes not to be like, well, I got to keep going because I got to make stuff because I got to make a living. Yeah, it gets all fubbled together. Fubbled. It's a new word I just made mm-hmm. up. Flubbed, flubbled together. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's there's the practice and then there's the professionalization of it. And mm-hmm. the practice is, I think it's rooted and grounded in an artist has a relationship to themselves and maybe to other artists and that the work that they're making and exploring is for first and foremost them and maybe the artists around them or the artists in their minds that they're imagining the sort of people they they imagine they would share it with if they decide to share it and that can be enough there's value just there for an artist in making their work part two is deciding okay and do I want to do anything with it do I want to show it to anyone do I want to share it with the public do I want to share it just with friends do I want to try to monetize it or professionalize or build a career but part one is it's a relationship to the self then you get to make a choice what what do you want to do with it if anything all of it some of it when an artist is getting for example into too much self-editing for example maybe they'll stop themselves before they pursue anything because the sort of marketplace or social media or outside what they imagine the outside voice will be sort of stops them before they even begin I try to bring them back to what about just returning to the root of you make this work because you have to you're in a dialogue with yourself you're exploring and processing your own experiences thoughts imagination and then you can decide if you want to invite anybody in but how about we first make it this really strong relationship to the self because i think no matter what's happening in the outside world whether a person perceives themselves as having success or not whatever that means to them they can always come back around to first and foremost I I do this because I have to, I do it for myself. It's sort of like a homecoming. It's like a home base a person can come back to no matter what's happening in the world. And the world will batter an artist when they put their work into the world. That's inevitable. That's what being in public does is it can have a lot of glorious outcomes and it really batters a person in their sense of self. Why don't I want to just go back to this why bother question for a moment? I, I love everything you said. I just filled my body up with yes, yes, yes. But then I sometimes wonder, so when I'm not professionalizing my work and I want to do my personal practice, I think, well, shouldn't I spend that time working on climate change? I think there's lots of parts to a person's life and the things that are basic to our functionality help us do all the other things that are going to require a lot of strength and resilience. The core issues that are most important to an artist who has desires to be politically engaged, socially engaged in activist community, that will be fed because it needs to be fed or else you'll experience burnout. That will be fed by all the different constellation of things a person does to take care of themselves, including making their work. So for example, when I know Notice that an artist is becoming sort of on the teetering on the edge of I'm burning out in the activist work that I'm doing, I will bring them back to let's turn up the volume on your practice as a way to re to feed your to fill yourself back up so that you have more energy to go out and to do the work that will deplete you over time. It's rich and rewarding and it will deplete you. You have to take care of yourself. And anybody who does any political work knows they have to take care of themselves if they want to do it over the long haul, more than six months. And for an artist, you know, for me, that's the things I do. I don't also have to make art, but for an artist, it's all the things they have to do for their body, their relationships, their mind, and they have to have their creative practice. So it's just one of the core functionalities of a person's life. And I think that can be hard to internalize. Like I can say it a million times, but an artist has received so many messages over the years that you get to make your work. It's a luxury. This is something you do if you have time. And they've internalized all the guilt that goes with that, that they, it's very difficult, even 
even though they know in their guts, when I say this, when I say this fundamental truth of my practice, my understanding of artists, they, they tell me they feel seen and understood, but still that chattering of culture tells them, oh, no, 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 you get to do this. It's, it's a luxury. It's a hobby. Instead of, no, you have to drink water every day. You have to do these different things for your body and your life every day. And you, you have to make your work every week. You have to be engaged in a creative practice. Okay. I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> done. Done. Well done. Well done. You said in an interview, as I was researching and, and putting together questions that you don't think of yourself as a creative. No, I do not. I do not feel it. I don't. It's like a running joke, even in my life with my spouse. I write books as a function of my job. I may never write another one ever again. Everybody, I think, probably benefits from creative exploration and creative expression. I certainly have, and I'm good at a lot of it. I don't have that fundamental need. I need a lot of art. I really need to take in a ton of things and different disciplines. My life doesn't deteriorate if I'm not in any kind of creative project. I am usually not in any kind of creative project. Yeah, that's fascinating to have been so drawn for your career for so long to help create. And, and I also like that definition of it, that it's like something you have to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was in graduate school to be a therapist, so, which I never sought licensure. So I'm not, I'm not a therapist. I work as a consultant. I, I did not pursue licensure because I only wanted to work in the arts and with artists. And so I just created a different path for myself. But in graduate school, considering what kind of populations I wanted to work with, a lot of helping professionals have certain populations they care about. Maybe it's children, or maybe it's uh, people with disordered eating, or maybe it's survivors of sexual assault. And for me, I just wanted to be with artists. I wanted to be in creative community. I wanted to work with artists. I did that professionally in a lot of different ways through museums and nonprofit organizations and artist residencies. But what I really loved as, as like the population I care about and want to be of service to is artists. And I'm not one, but I feel very next to. I love that. I also have to say that I think creating a path for yourself that is so alternative is in itself creative, but I won't <laughs> split that hair with you. I want to talk about creative burnout. I, I wrote a blog post series about it. I feel like it's something I've been teetering on the edge of so, several times in my life because of that produce, produce, produce for my content, produce teaching, produce more books. And with my last book, Why Bother? I wrote the book and then I didn't give myself a break before I immediately started marketing the book. And then the pandemic mm -hmm. hit and a lot yeah. of disappointment around our plans and a lot of frustration, a lot of getting paralyzed, which is kind of pretty much unlike me. What are some of the things that you have worked with people when they are feeling creative burnout? Well, I think there's a particular kind that has happened over the past year and a half mm -hmm. for everybody who had work they were planning on showing a book coming out. I had a book come out, people's exhibitions, their shows, their concert tours, people whose opportunities and plans were obliterated by the pandemic. I think there's grief that has to be processed for all that we thought was going to happen. And I think, again, artists can sometimes feel like, oh, that's ridiculous. I Nobody died in this circumstance. My, I just didn't get to go on a book tour. But it's still grief. You have people, I, I know from my own experience, I worked really hard in my book. I had big plans for a big book tour. I didn't get to do any of it. And I didn't even get to read it in a bookstore. Well, eventually I did one, but, but it was really disappointing. And for my clients who had those examples and more and more intensified, they have had to or will need to experience the grief of that loss and denying it or saying, oh, it could have been worse. This bad thing happened to somebody else. I think it sort of delays the inevitable inevitable grief that has to happen. And when an artist is avoiding grief, I find they get stuck. So there's kind of a stuckness that can happen that can feel like burnout. I also think an inevitable outcome 
of the pandemic was people's lives getting smaller in ways that are particular to them. And one thing an artist needs, I have a belief that there's these three basic needs for artists, making your work, having a robust community of artists and taking in lots of input. Well, mm -hmm. people have not been able to, you haven't been able to have a lot of adventures and experiences that people's landscape of new information got really limited for a very long time. And of course, then our social functioning was impacted by that. So I'll hear many artists be like, who used to perform on stage say, I don't even feel like I want to get on stage again. I no longer remember what that feels like, or I don't want to go to an opening and see a bunch of people. I, I, I feel really reluctant to be in crowds or even a small group. All of this has impacted an artist's ability to take in lots of experiences. And those experiences are what then get funneled in the studio or in the practice. It's like you go out and live and you observe, you think you feel, you have conversations, you have adventures, you have disappointments, you have laughs. And then those come out in your work because that's where it gets processed. That's how you process everything. So if, if a person's sort of experience gets limited very far down and tons of grief and fear is built around that, it just becomes, I think, this big stuck ball that's difficult to get around. Burnout and feeling stuck are a really common experience during the pandemic. And it's not a value judgment about anybody and their ability to make work again or what's going to happen. It's simply that a person's life has to get bigger in the ways that are meaningful to them again. And that may be different timelines for different people, depending on their life. We were in Denver. I live in outside about an hour from Denver and we were in Denver the other day and we were going by the performing center. And I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. I want to go to the opera. And my husband said, you will someday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Will I? It, it doesn't feel like it's ever going to change. I think change is the one thing that is constant and inevitable. So things are always changing, will continue to change. And what is available will become available again. And it will, for each person, it's sort of like geography in your own life and health experiences that will impact everybody's individual timeline. Oh, and I know I've had this conversation with both creatives and just regular people <laughs> that our lives have gotten really small and we're almost like we've forgotten how to get out of the smallness and we're just getting mm. comfortable in the smallness. We became numb to disappointment and yeah. wanting things because that's a survival strategy. It's like, great. Mm. Our, our brains did a great job. We, that was a lot of grief and disappointment. And so a survival mechanism is like numbness kicks in a disinterest, like, oh, okay, whatever. This is just the normal thing because it's easier to feel that than to feel the longing, the missing, the disappointment. I think that that sort of like layer of numbness will get pierced through and you'll locate that desire and that excitement and that longing again. I'm going to hold you to return of that. the full human experience right. of emotions will come back to us. I hope so. It's very interesting. When I'm observing it, it's interesting. When I feel caught by it or drained by it, it's not so interesting. <laughs> Self-compassion is a big theme on the show. It comes up. Just so many artists and creatives talk about the need for it or how they've learned it or how they struggle with it. And I know it's, it's something that you help people with a lot. Is there any particular take that you have on self-compassion for creatives that you found to be effective for that way that we can brutalize ourselves? First, just naming that it's, it's worth learning a different narrative playing in your head. It's worth it because if I thought that berating oneself and being a really mean spirited boss or coach or something on the inside, if that worked and was sustainable, then okay, I'd say, let's do that. but it just, it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work. work. <laughs> I'm a very practical person and I, like I really like to look for, well, what, what seems to work and what doesn't. And having 
having the locus of motivation be you're a piece of shit so you better go do something it doesn't last very long like berating ourselves might get us to some short deadline because we have to get there but it's not sustainable and it's just profoundly mean talk about why bother like why bother have a life where you just feel like shit all the time where you just the in being in your interior is just cruelty I don't want that I feel like we have to go through that and then unlearn it the older and older and older we get and I just want more people to get there faster so first of all it just it doesn't work so why not learn a different thing I really like to ask artists to consider how to build a strategy so that your source of motivation is not fear or punishment and berating but this like I get to do this thing because it's what is most meaningful to me this is a spiritual expression of me every time I'm in any kind of creative practice and I get to do that because my life matters to me and having a, the full expression of myself is good because I'm the only person I'm going to be this is the only I'm going to be with me more than anybody else on on the planet in this lifetime so why not have that be a good experience and not punishing oh it's beautiful and so true I mean I was one of the things in the why bother book that was from a story that somebody sent me her art was so beautiful because she just came to be to realize I make art because I matter mm -hmm. and that's really and that's, the, be the bedrock we have to find again and again Right. I mean, that, and that's like the arc of a lifetime, right? The emotional mm -hmm. arc of a lifetime going from I don't matter to maybe I do to, okay, I matter. My life matters to me because it's the only one I will have. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's so astonishing. I want to, that's so astonishing. Let me finish my sentence. So astonishing how hard that is for so many of us, given the world and the trauma we go through and the messages we get about ourselves. I want to go back when we were talking about sharing work. One of the things that I see a lot, and I work with creatives in general at the Oasis, and then I work with writers more specifically. And I see a lot of the women, I work exclusively with women, who come to me are really afraid, terrified. Sometimes it takes me decades to help them get to the point where they will share their work. Do you find that in your practice as well? Almost all of the clients I've ever worked with have had moments or ongoing fear of taking up space, of sharing themselves, whether it's publicly over the internet for all those reasons, or to people who they think are more skilled and talented than them, or people who they feel will judge them. Yeah, it, it, I think it's a really normal human experience that comes up for artists is the fear of sharing one's work, the desire and the fear both kind of battling mm -hmm. inside of oneself. Mm -hmm. What do you find helps to at least own the desire to share? Yeah. Well, I think coming back around to this, it, your, your work is a way that you commu communicate something of you, who you are, and that's a vulnerable thing. And it's also a pathway to let people in. And it's also a pathway to have an impact on others. So every artist, every piece of work that they make that they put onto the world, it's going to do something to someone. You'll probably never know about it most of the time. Mm -hmm. But I ask an artist to just think about, just think of 10 examples of work that's impacted you over the years of every discipline that you didn't tell the artist, they, they're long dead or you had no access to them or it didn't occur to you to say anything, but how you were changed by it, how it did something to you. Beth's idea to think about 10 works of art that have affected you, inspired you, changed you, maybe saved your life. It's worth doing that in writing, I think, or in conversation with a friend. Maybe have a party <laughs> and everybody comes in and shares. What are these major works of art that really meant a lot to you? And then maybe turn it into like a gratitude practice or a gratitude ritual. Like, what are you grateful about? Or just really keying in on and feeling that gratitude for those works of art. 
I have people do things like this in my classes and retreats, and I'd like to have them also imagine, you know, visualize or, or feel, if you're not a visualizer, that person who needs your work and imagine them finding it. Imagine them being fulfilled or learning something or being inspired or laughing and feel that, feel your gratitude for that connection and what you can offer them. And increase your desire to be here, you know? And so when you are willing to let your work be in the world, you're participating in that fluid conversation. You're, you're offering it up so that the person who's out there who needs to be changed by it can access it. They can't access it if it's not out in the world. They just, nobody can. On one hand, it's sort of seeing yourself as part of this big exchange where you've been taking and now you're going to give to. And another of learning detachment, that the outcome, as soon as you make a work and hand it over to people and you say, this is done, I'm done with this. It sort of no longer belongs to you because everything that we read, watch, experience, listen to, we bring our whole lives to it. So my experience of this thing right now is so shaped by me and my taste and my life experience and what happened this morning. So it, it, it's almost like that's a very private thing. It's even none of the business of the person who made it, you know? So learning detachment, I work with people a lot to learn detachment that you have no control over the audience's experience of the work, just as they can't control your experience of their work. You are offering it to let them have their experience and move on. It'll be a bell curve. There will be a few moments of people who are radically changed for the better and want to tell you about it. There'll be a few people who are like, this sucks. I hate it. Stop forever. And then everyone else has a good experience and you never hear about it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Over and over and over again. And, and the practice of the more you share it, the more you learn detachment, you see like, okay, that didn't kill me. I can survive this fear or somebody didn't like something I, that didn't kill me either. I found out that these, these fears I have won't actually obliterate me the way I thought mm -hmm. they would. And one of the things I, I keep telling my students and clients is there's more to come. Mm -hmm. So let it come. But if you never finish this and, and release it in whatever way you want, it's like a landing strip that's gotten right. Yeah. There's a backup. You have to get that thing out so that you can go through all the things that need to happen in order to make the next thing. Exactly. I see a lot of focus on making new work. So for example, in the writing world, it's if you don't write 500 words or a thousand words every day, you're not writing. And I get really angry about it because there's no time to do your reading or your thinking or to set up your organizational systems. It's like this kind of shadow productivity hustle thing in the creative world. And yet, and yet Beth, I also get so many people who are paralyzed and mm -hmm. procrastinating and trying to help them kind of find the middle ground of yeah. that. It's all just the middle path. I think it's a lie that we have to do anything every day except like floss or something. I, sleep, I always sleep. I ask my clients <laughs> to think about the week as the unit. Think about the mm -hmm. week. Touching your practice every week, getting inside of it so that your week doesn't feel complete unless you've been inside of your work, whether it's a specific practice or particular project. Because I think you're right. It's this middle path between paralysis, doing nothing, and um, feeling like you're failing a productivity chart, which isn't helpful either. And also each person's wired differently. So it takes a little bit of experience Experimentation to see me, who I, am, who I am right now, what seems to work, what seems to be like in a flow where I'm not punishing myself and I'm not avoiding anything either. I'm showing up for it 
And then when I can't, I know it's okay and I'll return. I trust myself that I will return. Trust yourself. It's really the key to creating, isn't it? And there's lots of things you can do to build that self-trust. And one of them is the habit of really noticing that you do a lot of things for your creative work. You do so much more than you think, whether it's learning or thinking about or reading or appreciating or doing the actual work. Generating new work is great. It's not the only thing that counts. So make it a practice to notice what you do and really take a moment to be grateful that you did it and to celebrate it. This creates self-trust. This creates momentum. And this helps build self-compassion. That's so Because life will always take you out of your practice. You will get sick. A holiday will happen. Somebody else will get sick and you have to take care of them. Just life happens and you and the world want to take you away from your practice. The muscle you are trying to strengthen is the coming back to it over and over and over again, which I heard somewhere about the, the real strength of meditation is not our ability to not have thoughts or to let them pass by. It's when we start thinking that choice, that moment where we decide to bring it back to the present, that's the thing you're strengthening. Same thing with your practice. Of course, you're going to stop making it. Of course, you're going to be like, I would much rather do anything than work on my thing right now. It's when you make the decision to do it anyway, to just come back to your practice, you're strengthening that muscle, you're sharpening that skill that's going to serve you for the rest of your life. Do you long to write? Do you love to write? But you find writing is a struggle. It's hard to make the time. It's hard to prioritize and own your ideas. Or you're really great at free writing and morning pages, but not so much putting stuff together, learning the craft, submitting it, sharing it to others. Do you want to write for others to be read, but you're also wary, even terrified of being seen? And do you have scars left by teachers, editors, bullies, or your own treatment of your writer self? If you long to write with more ease and more joy and more consistency and yes, finish things, I've got a fantastic program for you. It's called Right Now. It's based on 20 years of teaching writing and 40 years of studying writing. It's everything I've learned to make writing easier, more joyful, and more consistent. And you can read about it at jenniferloudon.com forward slash write dash now and get on the wait list if you want to be invited. I'm such a big believer in letting desire pull you forward, making it safe in your body to feel how much you love doing that work or have loved it in the past and beginning to condition your brain and wire those neurons together. So that can pull you forward more of the time versus sort of the rules or the productivity. Mm -hmm. And I like rules as much as anybody else, right? I like to track things and go, look how many times I meditated this week or look how many times I ran, but it can also become a whip. Right. When is it a support structure and when is it a mechanism to punish yourself and try to just stay away from punishment? (laughs) Yes. Just stay away from punishment. I love that. We had Laura Davis on the show a few weeks ago and she spent 10 years writing the memoir that's just coming out or has out now, The Burning Light of Two Stars. And one of the things that she talked about that I wanted to ask you about is what do you do when a project won't leave you alone? but you make attempts at it and they're not working. How do you discern like, yeah, there's still something here. I need to find a new mentor or try something different, or this is not going to work. I I need to let it go. So something else can come. Do you have any insights in that? Yes, absolutely. I think when you're haunted by something, you should trust that that means something. 
It means, okay. but it's not going to happen on your timeline. And we mm -hmm. have to surrender our timelines to the timeline of the work. Some books, for example, they take a long time to write because the things you have to go through to get the solutions to what you need to do in the book haven't happened yet. It doesn't mean that they're not going to happen. They haven't happened yet. And so when a person has a, a long body of work or something that they've been with for a long time that they're not sure how to complete and they're ha having that question of, do I just give this up? I think it's useful to have more projects happening at the same time that are in different phases of development. Not a ton, but a couple. When Beth was just talking there, I was reminded of an episode from season one. It's episode number four. It's called Pixar Story Experts on Saying Yes to Your Creative Calling. And it's a great one if you haven't listened to it. And both of the women in that episode are screenwriters. And so they talk a lot about how they have to manage and have all these different projects going because you know, you're trying to make a living and you don't know when a project's going to get sold or if it's going to get sold. So I think that's a really great model to go back and listen to if you haven't. And I also really remember one of my writing teachers, Priscilla Long, the um, author of The Writer's Portable Mentor, saying to me and all, all the students in the class, it's great if you can have a shorter piece if you're working on a longer book and you can finish it and put it out for publication. So you might think of an essay or a poem or a short story in a short story collection, but it can also be a novel excerpt, excerpt or some ideas that you share in blog posts or LinkedIn posts from a nonfiction book, something like that. I'm using writing example because that's what I'm thinking of right now, that you can get some feedback on, but also that sense of completion and everything we learn in that final, final push to completion. So those are just two thoughts about the multi-project approach. I especially think whenever you have a big thing that takes a long time, it's really useful to counterbalance that with something that has a quick turnaround or is in a different discipline, something that just balances the weight of that thing, something that brings some newness. Because with a book that you've been writing for a long time, there's no limerence, there's no more excitement, early relationship. <laughs> you're in the, you're lost in the woods that you created. So balancing that with something else and trusting that there may be a timeline for that work that's just not your timeline. What you're going to live through and learn and how you're going to grow and what you're going to make that's going to teach you new things may be leading you to the solutions that aren't available yet for what to do with that work. And the timing just might not be right yet. So I don't think anything has to be abandoned. Once you've started something, it's just like material available to you. You can return to it anytime. When it feels like I'm trying to force something that's just not working, it doesn't mean it is abandoned. It's just maybe put on, it's just put over here. It's just on the table. And now I'm going to focus on something else to see if that frees something up for me. And I do love having small projects that I can finish or put out in the world or get that sense of creative newness and falling in love and completion. Although I am a big believer in having only one really big project at a time. What do you think about that? I think everybody is different. I think some mm -hmm. people are very sort of project monogamous and they, their, their big project has to be one thing. They complete it and then they start the next. And others are wired such that they want a few different things happening or the nature of their creative industry is such that mm -hmm. if this goes, I'm going over here. But if this goes, I'm going over here. It's just you know, and I've known writers who have multiple books happening at the same time at very different levels of development. And then other people who it's one big thing at a time. And, and so, and everybody's just wired a little bit differently. I think it's useful to sort of be curious about what we're like without judgment of like, well, that's yeah. the right way to be and how right. I am is bad. It's just, we're, we're, we're all different. Yeah. It's so important to know our process and know our industry. That, that brings me to a question of 
like, let's say you do have multiple projects going, maybe you're waiting for the green light on something, maybe something's not gelling yet. How do you help people re-enter when they've been gone for a while or life happened, as you said earlier, and you got sick or your dog got sick or you bought a house or your house burned down. And now it's six months later, three years later, and you're like, well, how do you re-enter? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think you start by just sort of turning the lights back on. And by that, I mean, re-entering everything you'd already created without expectation of, and I'm adding to it or I'm editing it, but just letting the world that you were creating in the writing or in the paintings or whatever the body of work is, just letting yourself back into that universe and letting it start to absorb back into yourself, your subconscious. Because for a book that a person's been away from, for example, so much writing so many of the answers a person has to get will happen when you're not in front of your manuscript. It's like when you're doing a different thing and you're like, okay, I think I know what to do there now, but it has to be activated in your subconscious. It's like the lights have to be on inside the world. When you're re-entering something, you don't know where to begin. Give yourself a couple of weeks of, I'm just looking, I'm just reading. I don't have to, in fact, I'm not going to do anything to it. I'm just going to re-enter it and let it be activated in my, my mind again. There are moments when we want to stretch, we want to go to a new level, or we want to have a new view of our work, or we want to take on a new discipline, but we freeze, we freeze out of fear, we freeze out of getting it wrong, we freeze out of not knowing the first step to take. And yet we need to grow. What do we do, Beth? <laughs> do it badly. Plan to just do it very badly. That's good advice. Just play, just know that I'm going to try this thing. I have no expertise. I have no expectations. I'm going to master it. In fact, my aim is to do something that I'm not good at. Yeah. Just fail. full permission. <laughs> yeah. Full permission to suck. Yeah. One of the things that you write about in the book and talk about in the podcast is you're committed to financial well-being for yourself and your clients. And to me, that is you know so important. I've been a working creator for 30 years, supported my family, put my daughter through college, all of that. And yet we've, it, it's so difficult in this life to be to, to have either a creative practice in addition to the rest of life or to make a living as a creative. Mm -hmm. And I know you've helped people a lot with, with grants and, and residencies, and that's been part, both part of your work and, and something you consult on. I mean, I don't even know what question to ask. Like, how do we have, how do we have a robust and productive and healthy creative life and a decent financial life as creatives? <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably for most people, they won't. That's the reality. We live in economic inequity, you know, like we have to be honest about we don't have control over the grandparents we were born to. We we're mm -hmm. just born into the circumstances we we're born into. And we live in a mythology of bootstrapism where you can just work your way up and make lots mm -hmm. of money. And that doesn't actually account for any of the systemic inequity that we live in. So when I talk about financial literacy and financial well-being with artists, I think of it as two pools of work. And one is the emotional, behavioral, and psychological response to money, because money is very emotional. And the other is financial literacy, like actually learning skill building around money. And they're distinct things, and they have to happen at the same time. But the I think the artist quadratic formula is my art plus making a living equals what the fuck. That is like <laughs> the question. And that's the question almost all of them bring to me. I mean, some people come to me and they have unearned income through, you know, an insurance through a tragic death in their life or through a family inheritance or a trust fund. I've had those clients too, and they have their own particular needs and, and, and anxieties. But for all of the clients who have to earn money to live, it's 
a ongoing riddle that we're trying to solve of, okay, so right now, who and where you are, what's a good way for you to make money that either neutrally or positively interacts with your practice? We're just trying to stay away from negatively impacts your practice. And that's different for truly every single person. The, in the world of paid work, whether it's related to their practice or their creative skills are completely detached. Every, I've had clients do everything you can imagine when it comes to paid work. And what works for one person doesn't work for another person. So for all of my clients, we're trying to understand, so what's true for you in your life, your family, the economic reality you were born into that you find yourself in now, what's happening in your practice, what kinds of paid work you do and don't do, what seems to interact your practice, what seems like it could be monetized and built into an income stream, and what needs to be protected from that. All of those questions are different for each person. And I think it has to be a really like sort of personally derived set of answers that also then will change because then a person will be like, well, now I want to have a baby mm -hmm. or I got divorced or I am tired of living with roommates. I need to live on my own. I need to make more money or I have no money in retirement. So this equation changes as we get older too, but mm -hmm. it's complex and emotional because money is so complex and emotional and unequal. And I love and, how you said and I, and I have to add, I forgot to say that you all artists are the only class of worker. You're the only group of workers who work jobs in order to make your work. <clears throat> so you're also a distinct kind of worker in the world that other workers won't find legible. Like for example, the, another thing about me not being an artist, when I'm done with work, I'm not then doing my work. I'm, I'm doing other things. And some of those are labor, but I'm not doing the work I really want to do and need to do in the world. And I living with a writer and painter for the past 15 years, my my, my wife, I see she works, she has her paid job during the day and always has, and those have been different jobs. And then she would write and paint after work or on the weekends. And that just makes also you as a class of workers so distinct from the rest of the workers. How you think about what you do for work and what, whether it drains you or leaves you the time. Or I remember when I first got out of film school and I thought, well, I got a job as a reader. So I read screenplays and books for a big talent agency. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'll read all day. It'll help my writing. Oh my God. No, <laughs> you read all day and you wrote book reports. And then you were like, the last thing I want to do now is write. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's so true for so many jobs that an artist thinks, well, this is the thing I should do. Yeah. It, it, teaching, for example, I have so many clients who go in or out of academia because they think that will be the solution. And for some people that's great. And for other artists, they will never make anything as mm -hmm. long as they're teaching. It's just what works for one person won't work for the next one. Yeah. I, I like, I, I know that to be true as well. And I loved also that you said, when you're thinking about monetizing your work, there's some things that shouldn't be monetized or they're not ready to be monetized. They need to be over here protected. And we don't acknowledge that enough in our world. They're, you're making them for you or they're too tender or they're not developed enough. Yeah. And I think having a portion of one's practice, especially for my clients who derive all or most of their income from their work, I think it's really useful to have a corner of their practice that that's not touching that. Maybe it never will, but it definitely isn't right now. To have a corner of their practice that can be just more privately held. Yeah, I found that really important. I have a hard time doing it, but I, I found it to be really important and kind of relates to that creative burnout question for me when I'm not, not making stuff that's just for me and not to share to help others. You talked about three things that you think artists need, and one of them is a community. How do, how do you know that you're in a positive community? 
I think if you look around and you have a lot of artists in your life who want good things for themselves and you, that everybody, that when somebody succeeds, everyone's like, that's awesome. Even if they have a pang of, oh, why not me? But that ultimately they understand that, you know, when one person does better, we can all do better. But that a community, I, I, the community is the biggest resource an artist can have. Your creative community not just anyone, but a healthy community of people who want good things for themselves and each other is the richest resource a person can have because everything can be found in that community. And how do you foster a community like that? We have to activate it. You have to actively participate. So mm -hmm. how do relationships happen? We have to put something into them. We have to actually participate and show up and, and be in relationship to one another. So it doesn't happen purely online. I don't think sadly. And I, it doesn't happen passively. It yeah. means um, feeding relationships, seeking out and feeding relationships. Did you read Bad Art Friend? No, but I read the cut article about Bad Art Friend. Please don't read Bad Art Friend. It is no, the I'm opposite. Never going to at this point. Yeah. yeah, I know it was scintillating, but then I went on Instagram and bragged about how I also only have one kidney, but my kidney, my other kidney died. I didn't donate it, but I do like to brag about that. <laughs> What's the biggest challenge that you're seeing your clients face right now? Yeah, I don't know if there's one thing. I think everybody has their cocktail of challenges. I think the transition to what's the next phase of my working life mm -hmm. going to be, both in money making and in my art making. We've, you know, like we're always changing, but we so rarely have like big group change happening at the same time foist upon us. And so I find that a lot of my clients are sort of have been checking in with like, who am I now? What's, how do I want to work and on what and why? And what wasn't working that now, because it had to change, gets to continue to change. Who do I want in my life? How do I want to spend my time? What really matters to me about my practice? I think those questions are really up for people. Certainly questions, continued questions of what's going to happen with my work in the next year and a half. Will I actually go on this tour? Will this exhibition happen? Will that gallery still be open? The impermanence and fragility of our systems have been writ so large and clear across our faces and foreheads that I think a lot of my clients just, the precarity is unquestionable. So it's like, they're like, well, I think I'm going to tour in the UK. I think I'm doing the show in New York next spring. It's a lot of shrug. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I feel that very much. And I feel like I've lost a lot of the will right now to propel anything. Yeah. It just so happens that there's some Jewish wisdom that can be very helpful. Whether or not a person is Jewish, this year is 5782. The new year just happened last month. This is called a Shemitah year, which every seven years in tradi the tradition of Judaism is that it's a rest year where you rest your fields, you forgive all debts, you, you're supposed to be resting the land, which probably shows up in a lot of ancient cultures. But so in Judaism, in modern Judaism, the question is like, so how do we interpret this now? You don't have land, you're not a farmer, or you are, but there's no way you can rest a field for a year. And I've been asking myself, like, what am I resting for the next year? And I decided one of the things I'm resting is any professional ambition. I am not going to strive. I have a job. It's really great. I consult with artists all day. I love doing that. I'm very fortunate that I have that. I have this subscription-based homework club thing going on. And I just decided I, as a Capricorn, I've always been like looking to what's my next mountain to climb. And that answer has always been professional. And I realized like, I think it has to be a spiritual mountain to climb. And in order to do that, I 
have to rest professionally ambition. So I am taking the next year, the next Jewish year, 5782, to sort of rest ambition. And so for people who also feel like that's ringing true for you, you could take the Shemitah year to rest anything that feels like it needs a rest so that something else can grow. It's useful to ask ourselves what needs to be rested so that something else can, can, can get bigger. Yeah, I'm really excited to have no professional striving. It does feel really good for me too. So I'd like to ask everybody this last question. What would you like to learn next? Well, I'm in it. So I can say what I am learning, which is I'm about to go to Mexico to some parts of Mexico I've never been before. And so I'm doing a deep dive into Mexican history and studying Spanish. I do this every time. This is my favorite part of traveling abroad is I do like a language study and I read a ton of books about the place. And so I started with understanding the Spanish conquest through the point of view of the Aztec empire. And I'm just going up to current day. So what I'm studying is the history of Mexico and it is electrifying. That's fantastic. It has been such a rich and practical conversation. People are going to love this. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for all the work you do in the world and for having me today. And is there anything in particular you'd like people to know about the, is it the homework club? Mm -hmm. I have, yeah. So I have two books. My new book came out this year. It's called Make Your Art No Matter What. My previous book, where is it? It's called Your Art Will Save Your Life. And then I have a a subscription-based structural support for artists called Homework Club. And it's monthly homework and workshops and accountability pods. Wonderful. I feel like Beth Pickens is the person to listen to every time you're caught up in any kind of drama or black and white thinking or beating yourself up or the itty bitty shitty committee. She just brings you right back to center, doesn't she? Love it. Did you know we create really good show notes with all kinds of juicy links? Yes, we do. Just go to jenniferloudon.com forward slash create dash out dash loud and you will find a treasure trove of links and summaries and really another way to take in the podcast so jenniferloudon.com forward slash create dash out dash loud or just go to jenniferloudon.com and click on podcast right there at the top (laughs) super easy next week i am so pleased to bring you the founders and creators of inclusive guide crystal egley and parker mcmullen bushman inclusive guide is a tech company founded by parker and crystal two black women with a mission to create data-driven economic incentives for businesses to be more inclusive and welcoming and if that sounds kind of dry and tech i'm telling you nothing about these two women or their mission is dry these are true visionaries They are so brave and their vision is a digital green book, but it's more than that. In fact, if you go to their website, their vision is to create a digital green book. It's also so much more than that. They want to change the way businesses think about inclusion. On this digital platform they're creating, we can rate businesses and spaces based on how welcoming they are in their customer service experience to user-specific identity, race, ability, gender, etc. We can then support businesses to become more welcoming and the businesses that already are. Their vision is to create a world where people are free of the impacts of discrimination and systematic oppression, and they're going to do it through a truly just and responsible use of data and revealing. This is big stuff, and you are going to be on fire with how big their vision is. They made me start to think a lot bigger about what I want to do next, so I can't wait to share this electrifying interview with you next week. And in the meantime, create out loud.